0: This is What's, What's with, with Washington, where you ask the questions about our region, about the place we live, about your neighborhood, Anacostia,
1: Prince George's County, Pentagon City, be Columbia Heights,
0: and WAMU Answers. I'm a second-generation Washingtonian. Worth 5?
1: This is What's With Washington, I'm Michaela Lefrac, and today we're answering a question from Melba about one of the things that I think makes DC so unique, all of its embassies. And Melba is a listener. She lives in Bethesda, and she commutes into D.C. um, every day along that stretch of Massachusetts Avenue called Embassy Row. And there are these two abandoned buildings that she's always wondered about. One is this Georgian-style brick mansion, and the other is this white building with these big brown columns and beautiful blue tile work on the front. I drive by both of them on my commute, and I've been doing that for the past several years. And I wondered, because there was no activity in the buildings and around it, but someone was taking care of the basic landscaping maintenance. She did a quick internet search, and she she found out that the fancy ornate white building was the former Iranian embassy. And next to it was the former ambassador's residence. But the thing is, Iran hasn't had any ambassadors or any diplomats at all in the U.S. since 1979. And we'll get to why in a second. Um, But that means they've basically been empty for years. And Melba was wondering what these mansions looked like inside. And I thought, wow, if only these walls could talk. And then several months ago, I started to see construction activity, lots of white vans and trucks outside. And I had thought about just dropping by and asking one of the construction workers what's really going on there. And then I thought, well, they, they may see me as a security risk. I better not try that. I better <laughs> just call WAMU. And said centers. one of us. I get it, Melba. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we'll do the dirty work. Be honest, I was super excited to go snooping around an embassy building because they're all like these little secret worlds with, um, I don't know, with tons of stories to tell. You never really get to, to go inside. So I don't know. Have you ever been in any of these buildings before? I've been inside of embassies. But yeah, it's always like if these walls could talk. Right? Yeah. I know. Um, so I should introduce you. This is Mana Kashfi. She's the executive producer of the Kojo Namdi show here at WAMU. Thanks for joining us, Mana. Thank you for having me, Michaela. If I remember correctly, you heard I was exploring the the former Iranian embassy and asked me an innocent question and I trapped you into being on this show with us. Is that right? Yeah, I gotta I gotta rethink
0: when I questions that I ask you in the future. I but know. I'm really excited to be here. And did you know what the two buildings looked like? Yeah, I've driven by it um, a million times, uh, you know, when coming down Massachusetts Avenue, and that the Fancy, ornate one with the blue tile work that you mentioned is kind of iconic. I think um, any of us Iranian-Americans who live in this area and ever have visitors from out of town, you know, you drive down Massachusetts Avenue and point it out as part of the (laughs) D.C. driving
1: tour. It's really beautiful and distinct. And then right next door is this like, it's kind of like your classic Colorama building the this, like, Georgian-style big brick four-story mansion, um, which I learned has, I think, 46 rooms in it. Which oh, only 46? To, I know. I know. Please. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're completely boarded up right now. Nothing, you know, when you, I'm sure, like, when you've driven by, people have noticed, you know, there's no, there's nothing going on. Yeah, I mean, not quite abandoned, but pretty close. So these two buildings, they actually used to be totally different than they are today. So I want to take you back in time a bit to the 1960s. The Iranian embassy actually used to be this very, this like hip joint, as the kids used to say, mostly thanks to this one man who helped to build it. Hello. Hello. This is Michaela again in Washington. Yes, Mikey, How are you, dear? This is Adashir Zahidi, and he was the ambassador for Iran twice, first in the early 1960s and then again in the 70s. You know how old I am? No. Well, I tell you, but don't tell anyone. All right. No, everybody knows. <laughs> I'm 90 years old. And I've looked up a lot of old photos of Ambassador zahidi and every part of him just shouts, dashing diplomat, because he had these beautiful suits, he had this dark brown hair, and he was even married at one point to an Iranian princess, which means that he was the son-in-law of the Shah of Iran. So very big deal. So I built the Iranian embassy, the architect, which I brought from Iran. Zahedi told me he actually flew the architect he hired from Iran to the US and then back to Iran so that he could visit Persepolis, and he used it as an inspiration for the embassy and the embassy it turned out amazing there's even one room that i've seen pictures of with this high domed ceiling and it's covered in these incredibly intricate mosaics that twinkled like little tiny stars it's it's really beautiful uh, the, when you enter is a big hall and then the staircase goes up downstairs when you come in your left Zahidi recited the entire layout of the embassy to me, and he would describe every room by how many people it could hold, which I thought was really interesting. But it makes sense because he was known for these huge parties that he would throw. Zahidi would have, uh, you know, not just bowls of caviar, but buckets of caviar and very, very lavish things. This is Hussein Askari, and I talked to him to get a better sense of what these parties were like and what their importance was in this. DC high society scene back then. Askari is Iranian and he's a professor emeritus of international affairs at George Washington University. And he knew the ambassador back in the 70s and he'd visit the embassy, but, but he said he stayed away from the parties. They were just not his scene. Um, and the guest list at these parties included Nixon's, Kennedy's, Andy Warhol, Liza Minnelli, like the whole shebang. And Askari would read about all their antics the next day in the newspaper. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor was for a while uh, going out with him. They had a relationship. And uh, he, I remember one time vividly, (laughs) he uh, put champagne in one of her shoes and drank from it. Have you ever done that at a party?
0: No, apparently I'm not
1: partying the right way. I know. So Askari told me that Iran could afford to throw all these parties with their buckets of caviar and all this stuff because of the oil boom that was happening in the Middle East. And Zahedi was really close to the Shah and his father, too, was a general who had helped put the Shah in power. So it was a very close relationship between the Shah and Zahedi. And so, yes, he did have an open checkbook. Money was not an object. Iran had gotten all this money all of a sudden. And um, it, uh, you know, it went on a shopping spree. Yes. So um, I'm wondering if you can guess what happens
0: next. Well, I'm guessing 1979 has something to do with it.
1: Yes. When we come back, the Iranian revolution changes things for Ambassador Zahidi. This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. You reported for years on U.S.-Iranian relations, and you know a lot about what's going on between these two countries. So explain to me what exactly happened in
0: 1979. So in February of 1979, there was a revolution Um mass uprising on the streets of Tehran uh, that ushered in the Islamic revolution.
1: University students demonstrating in Tehran, shouting death to the Shah. Demonstrations like it. these today in Tehran are a daily occurrence in towns throughout the, the
0: country. The Shah now. had fled. Ayatollah Khomeini returns to Iran uh, to head up a new system of government uh, and becomes the leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran.
1: The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took of the palace of the Shah.
0: Later that same year, in uh, November of 1979, a group of students invade the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and take uh, Americans hostage for 444 days.
1: The very uncertainty of the hostages' condition creates a situation in which President... That
0: was really the heightened tension point and led to ties being severed between the two countries. The government of Iran must recognize the gravity of a situation which it has itself created. And in the aftermath of that, both embassies the Iranian embassy here in D.C. and the American embassy in Tehran were left abandoned. And that was a very difficult time for Iranian Americans here in the U.S. There was a lot of uh, tensions and a lot of um, kind of discrimination and and hate uh, targeted towards them. There were daily demonstrations outside of the Iranian embassy here in D.C. pretty much during the hostage crisis. And... When you listen to a lot of Iranian-Americans who were here at the time tell stories, it was a very difficult time to navigate, um, but the the it's left quite an imprint on both diplomatic and cultural relations between the two countries for the past 40
1: years. OK, so here's where I'm going to jump back in. Iran owns about a dozen properties in the U.S., including these two that we've been talking about on Massachusetts Avenue, and they're all stuck in this kind of weird limbo and quickly... Here is how this works. When the U.S. suspends diplomatic relations with a country, the U.S. State Department is legally bound to protect that country's diplomatic properties here. And it gets the money for maintenance by renting them out. But it is not allowed to sell them. So State rented out the Iranian residence for a while in the 90s, but the person it rented to got behind on rent uh, to the tune of like $750,000, and they had to evict her. And it's pretty much been empty since until as our question asker melba noted there's been construction just like just in the past couple months they've been working on the the residence they went over there and they they're putting in new windows and stuff we just parked on what street is this 32nd 30th 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 Oops. street So my producer Patrick and I, you know Patrick well, um, we decided to go over there and we went with these two local real estate agents, um, Bobby Brewster and Daryl Judy. And I wish you could have met Bobby. She was so great. She's, you know, this kind of little older lady. She drove up in this blue Jaguar and um, she parked it just in a driveway, in somebody's driveway. (laughs) Um, And she got really thrown off by the windscreen on Patrick's microphone. You have to listen. Okay. What's this? The microphone. Shh. I thought it was a little dog. Continue. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> uh,
0: to uh, be so fair. <laughs> that windscreen is pretty shaggy.
1: It really is. They're starting to look a little janky. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but Bobby and Daryl, they just eyeballing the residences, and from what they know, they valued the residence at around ten or twelve million dollars uh, oh if gosh. they were allowed to sell it, which they are not. Um, and and Bobby has tried and i did have a client and we tried to buy it and iran
0: said no really it wasn't for sale in some cases with embassies you have to be very careful like iran right now because you don't know if this government will be in power five years from now and the power that comes in might say that sale was not
1: legitimate So she's she's actually sold a lot of foreign owned buildings before and former embassies. And she says that, yeah, it's like it's could be a real headache because um, you kind of have to not only do you have to, like, figure out a good buyer, but you have to negotiate with an entire other country's government, essentially, because sometimes like an entire parliament will have to decide whether or not they can sell this house. Um, But she said, you know, they think that this this um, big brick mansion is going to be really easy to rent out once State Department Fixes it up. It's at this really, you know, desirable cross section of of neighborhoods, Embassy Row and Colorama, and of course, Colorama has some very famous residents. Yeah, indeed. We got the Obamas, we got the Clintons, we got Ivanka, Jared Trump, the whole shebang. Um, but the embassy next door is actually um, it's actually going to be. They said pretty hard to to rent out if if State Department ever decides to do that. This is a very specific building. The one next door, the residence, would have a much easier time finding an
0: owner. This one would be a little bit more difficult to find someone to meet such a
1: specific need.
0: Right. The best thing is to hope that the wonderful relationship that was between Iran and the, the U.S. will somehow be brought together again. And I hope they keep this and it's a, be a harbinger of things to come.
1: With buildings like these, with foreign-owned buildings like these, the State Department is put in charge of maintaining them. But they you know, they don't use taxpayer dollars to do that. They use revenue that they get from renting out the buildings. So, for example, one Iranian-owned building in New York is rented out to this very fancy art gallery, and they earn a lot of money from that. Um, so same thing here in the D.C. They're planning to use rent in order to keep maintaining the building.
0: Did the State Department tell you why now, and whether they already have you know
1: people lined up to to move in? Oh my gosh, no! But I uh, requested so many interviews with them. I begged and pleaded, and um, they they. Decided to decline all of those interview requests. So, so we don't quite know. All we do know is that we, you know, we have the the building um, permit requests from from the DC government that the State Department filed. And I also talked to some of the contractors who are working on it, who did confirm that they are working on the building, but they won't say why or for whom. The mystery deepens. Mysterious. I know. As with everything in DC, there's like thirty thousand layers of bureaucracy. It's very DC. <laughs>
0: So do they have to confer with the Iranian government before they rent it out or they have no. full autonomy?
1: No, that's what's so weird. So they don't have to at all. All The the only thing they can't do is sell it, but they can rent it. What do you think of that? I mean, Bobby Brewster says, you know, hopefully one day, you know, diplomatic relations will be restored. Iran will come back. We'll bring its ambassador, yada, yada, yada. Like, do you, how close to that do you think we actually are?
0: I mean, that's the ideal, of course, but I don't think we're anywhere near that anytime in the near future. Just looking at the landscape of relations with the uh, nuclear deal being off the table, um, with negotiations having fallen apart, um, with the current stance that the White House has towards relations with Iran, um, I would like to think that that's how all of this will turn out. But... I don't even know if that would be possible in our lifetime, the way that things are going right now.
1: I, th- I think what's even more poignant here is that the former embassy feels like this very physical representation of the U.S.'s relationship with Iran. Like it was built in these two styles, American modernism, Persian classic architecture. And when I went up to it, it has this, this beautiful old wooden door, but it looked so worn down. And you can still see, though, what it used to be.
0: Yeah, I guess it really is symbolic when you think about it. And the um, same when you look at images of what the American embassy in Tehran looks like. I mean, it's been it's open and people come and go. But um, the reason people gather there now and the message that it sends is quite different than how it was envisioned.
1: Mona, thank you so much for joining me and for telling us a little bit about your life and about Iranian history, too. Thank you for having me, Kayla. It was a lot of fun. That's all we've got for this episode of What's with Washington. But before we do the credits, I've got two requests for you this week. One, do you have a friend who loves weird facts or fun stories about D.C.? Tell them about this podcast. We love new listeners, and word of mouth is one of the best ways to get new folks interested. Two, submit a question. We know you've got one rolling around in that head of yours, and you can submit it at wamu.org slash what's with, and maybe we'll call you up and you can be on the show. You can also click around while you're there and see some of the questions we've already answered. That's wamu.org slash what's with. This episode was produced by Ruth Tam, Retch, Julie Karen, me, and Patrick Fort. Our theme music is by Ben Privet, and today's show was mixed by Mike Kid. WAMU's general manager is JJ Yore, and Andy McDaniel oversees all the content we make here. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Michaela Lefrak, and see you next time.